Well, good morning and welcome to week four on our sermon series of Spiritual War. And before we uh, jump into the message, I want to take a minute and talk to a handful of you in the room, and you know exactly who you are. I want to say, great job, and I'm really proud of you, because the feedback after last week's sermon, which was not light, by the way, we talked about witchcraft, demons, possession, oppression, uh, and more abominations left and right, as the scriptures call them. And throughout the week, what I heard from many of you is honestly just really encouraging. Um, congratulations and great job to those of you who went home and you found dark magic items in your home and you destroyed them and you burned them. Great job to those of you who just did an honest assessment of the past and you looked at the dark magic and occult practices that you dabbled in and you asked for prayer and you went before the Lord and you realized maybe in a new way the authority that you have in Jesus Christ the greatest authority in all the cosmos who now dwells in you by his spirit and, and you were bold and you prayed against the evil one and any demonic influence in your life. Honestly, great job. Uh, to those of you who you have been participating in, uh, we'll call it dark magic, but things you didn't quite understand were forbidden in scripture and your response upon hearing the word of God was quick and swift to get it out of your life and to pray and to repent. Um, on so many levels, I was just blown away and encouraged. In fact, um, it was last week, I talked with somebody who doesn't go to our church, and, and they asked me what I was preaching on. I said, you know, dark magic, occult practices, and their response to me was, well, it doesn't feel very relevant. And, um, and I was like, you have, you have no idea. <laughs> and um, I didn't say much to the person, but um, I was affirmed that the evil one hates this subject but the kingdom of God is growing one person at a time and personally just so, so proud of all of you. And, and there were a handful of you that came up to me and, and you said, I am resolved. I will never for the rest of my life touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I think the Lord is just so pleased. Our desire is to protect you, to love you, that you might thrive spiritually for the rest of your life. And in the greatest of ironies, last week was a handful of people's first time at Village Church. So welcome. Um, and uh, it's not uncommon, by the way, that we deal with pretty heavy and weighty issues because that's life and that is real and the Word of God addresses them. And, and uh, we, we would prefer not to give you marshmallows, but substance so that you can grow spiritually and have a strong foundation all in a spirit of hopefully love and grace and truth that glorifies Jesus. So yay, today is also going to be heavy in a different way. And um, there are going to be some really um, thick and heavy subjects that we address. So buckle up. Let's do this together. And again, the goal is to love you well and to help you be like Jesus and to help you gain victory in the spiritual war. I want to start off by talking about spiritual fog. This is the inability to see blatant deceptions right in front of your eyes. The inability to see blatant deceptions right in front of your eyes. Have you ever been with friends or family where you watch the news and you think to yourself, why can't they see this for like what it really is? Like there are these times when you have insight into the spiritual reality of what's going on behind these ideas or these worldviews or these theologies. 
In fact, maybe as you look back, you're kind of surprised at yourself because maybe there was a season, maybe the season is today where you kind of bought into lies that in retrospect, you should have known they were so easy to identify. And maybe by the spirit of God or the teaching of the word of God, um, the Lord brought illumination to you to show you these ideas and these concepts, what they are, and you repented. But as you look back, you're like, why was I living in a spiritual fog? And the answer is usually pretty simple. Spiritual fog happens when we are more formed by the world than the word. And the, and the world is everywhere. It's just about bombarding you with ideas left and right. And let me just get to one of my so what's at the very beginning here. Last week, the so what was, for the love of God, utilize the power of prayer and the authority you have because of the spirit of Jesus in you. And today it is for the love of Jesus Christ. Open up his word and study it. And maybe you need to get into a Bible study. Maybe you need someone to teach you how to handle personal Bible study. Maybe you need to get connected to a, a community group or a men's group or a small group. Maybe there's a Bible study in your neighborhood. Just for the love of God, please engage your mind in the Word of God. Because if you don't, I guarantee you subtly and inevitably spiritual fog will overtake your mind. So the Apostle Paul has a pretty clear word about spiritual fog for Christians, and I'll show it to you. I'll put it on the screen. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and, and if you read 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is not thrilled with the Corinthian church. Um, they're pretty irritating, to be honest. It'd be hard to be their pastor, but he writes, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your, what's the word? Thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let me share with you the implication of this. Christian, we are vulnerable to deceptions that unknowingly align us with the devil. I want to let that just sit for a minute. Now, I'm confident there's no one in this room that if I were to ask, how many of you would like to be aligned with the devil who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, then none of you are going to raise your hand unless you are possessed by the evil one and you have no self-control right now. My, my guess is that no one in this room is consciously desiring to align with the evil one. And yet the Apostle Paul posits this idea, he's cunning. He is very smart. He's learned how to trick individuals and the masses. And spiritual fog makes Christians susceptible to terrible ideas. All right, open up with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 8. Um, if you remember, um, a few months back, it was April 25th and May 2nd, I did a two-week sermon series on progressive Christianity. And ironically, uh, multiple people told me that's not relevant, that's also not important. So we preached on it, and even though many of you in the room had never heard the phrase, it represented an entire theological system of thought that has been influencing you, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, and your neighbors. And then when you heard this sermon series, many of you were like, lights went on, whoa, I knew it was happening, I didn't know what it was called. 
And so this is uh, one of those subjects that's just so important. So what we did is we opened up this text of scripture, and I want to revisit the first part of our exegesis of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And here's what's happening. There's a little church in a city called Colossae, and it's a young church, and the Apostle Paul is deeply concerned for the church because spiritually harmful ideas are beginning to settle in, and the fog is becoming real. And here's what's so dangerous. To most of the people, it felt right. I need you to understand something, that in the... American system of theology, if it feels right, we are easily swayed. And so what we have to do is rise above the feelings, and we actually have to use our minds, because so much of the warfare happening right here in this world, it is intellectual. Look at verse 8, chapter 2, the book of Colossians, see to it that no one takes you Captive. And captive is an ancient Greek uh, term um, that's typically used in ancient literature to speak of the plundering of a cargo ship as they tie you up. And the idea is that they snuck on board. Maybe they passed themselves off as an ally or a good guy. And at the right moment, they exploited you, tied you up, and robbed you in front of your face. But they felt like good guys. And this is the very nature of a Trojan horse. And so the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 8 and answers the question, so what specifically is taking people captive? He says this, they are taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So this empty, deceitful philosophy is really any idea that feels right that might even make initially, without too much thought, logical, but actually is void, empty, and is a part of a larger agenda. So uh, empty philosophy, it's best captured in a word, mantras. Uh, let me illustrate this. In the third and fourth century, there was a theologian pastor. His name was Arius. Arius is what is known as a heretic because he believed in heresy. Heresy is any addition to the gospel, subtraction from the gospel, or substituting an idea in the gospel. If you add, take away, or substitute any aspect of the good news of Jesus Christ, it ceases to be the gospel. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have fought for a simple, unadulterated, pure gospel. And when someone becomes a heretic, they believe and promote an idea that is anti-gospel. Well, Arius, um, he believed in a really terrible idea that many of you may not understand the implications, but it was devastating. And here was the idea. He reframed who Jesus was, not as eternally pre-existent, but as a created being. And already your brain should be just filtering this out. Like, that's a really bad idea. And it is explicitly unbiblical. I mean, the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. I mean, Jesus being eternally existent at creation, the agent of creation, Jesus being the one who speaks in creation and matter exists. Like, this is a pretty big idea. And so he, in 321 AD, was in a city called Alexandria, and a bunch of pastors and bishops came together as a part of what's called a synod. A synod is a gathering of really important, influential spiritual leaders, and, and they rebuked him heartily. They told him this is wrong. 
And they, they hoped that because they were um, pretty smart and persuasive men and they opened up the scriptures that Arius would stop. But Arius didn't stop. In fact, Alexandria was the home to a very influential university. And go figure, all the university professors bought into Arius' lies. And they would train these young people and they would send them all over the known world. So guess what happened? Arianism spread like wildfire. Go four years later, 325 AD, there's the Council of Nicaea. Have you ever heard of the Nicaean Creed? That's where this happened. And, and Arius was deemed a heretic and warned to stop. And they tried to get rid of Arianism, but Arius was very smart. He created a mantra. And the mantra was kitschy, and it was catchy. And the mantra went like this. There once was a time when the sun was not. And then somebody later put it to music. And this melody with this kitschy, memorable phrase ingrained it and seared it into the conscience of the masses, many of whom couldn't read nor discern, nor did they know the Bible very well. And so the masses started repeating this phrase. Like a good neighbor. <laughs> Ducktails. Thank you. That's my favorite one, guys. Every time we do mantras, I come back to that one. But you take kitschy phrase plus, plus melody, you say it out loud, and here's what mantras do. It's really powerful. They bypass your brain, and they give your heart a big hug, and they feel right, which makes them incredibly dangerous or incredibly effective. Now, fast forward. It is 380 A.D., and Arianism was growing and growing and growing. They had the Council of Constantinople. And with finality, they stomped out Arianism everywhere. But that dumb mantra seared it into the conscience of the Roman Empire for an entire century almost. And that's how quickly mantras can bypass your brain, go to your heart, and take an, ins an insidious idea put it into the conscious vocabulary of the masses, and it repeats itself. By the way, if everybody's saying it, it's got to have some truth to it, right? Sure. Mantras, let's define this. They are repeatable, sacred, feel-good statements that, particularly in the wrong hands, keep minds captive. They're repeatable, meaning they are memorable and portable. You can take them anywhere. You say them once. They get into people's brains. It sears. They can now take it with them anywhere they want. They are sacred, meaning they are culturally authoritative. To challenge a mantra is like a non-Christian challenging your authority as a Christian, which is the word of God. And we're honestly no better in our emotional state at times. And when people poke at the word of God, what do you feel? Sometimes irritated, sometimes exasperated, sometimes you're like, don't mess with my authority. It's the same thing with cultural mantras. When you mess with a cultural mantra, it is not unusual that you're going to evoke emotions because their entire life for so many people are built on cultural mantras and the hope that they will stand the test of scrutiny and tough Questions. Number three, they feel good. And we all know that if something feels right, it must be right. That's just normal, right? But this is how doctrine is done for most people. It's done on whether or not it resonates with my mind, my heart, and my soul. But this is not how Christians do doctrine and ideas. 
We measure and weigh everything under the authority of the word of God to ensure that it's true. We test it. And we're not afraid to test it. I'm not afraid to have my ideas tested because my identity is not in being right, but it is in pursuing what is right and true. And so as Christians, we should love the free exchange of ideas. We should love the the freedom that we give each other to test our ideas, to make sure they stand under the scrutiny of the word of God. So what I'd like to do is I want to share with you five cultural mantras. Now, before I do this, I want to acknowledge what I'm about to walk into. I'm I'm gonna talk about five cultural mantras that I believe are false and do not stand under the weight of the scrutiny of the word of God. But what happens when you challenge a cultural mantra? One of two things, anger leading to attack or flight, I can't be here, I must leave. Now, I just want to be very clear on the front end. I'm really not interested in picking a fight. I'm really not interested in upsetting anybody. But there's no way for me to pick five mantras, each of which I guarantee you there is at least one or more people in the room who believe it, and it has cultural authority for them. So there's no way for me to do this and to not maybe poke here a little bit. But I think if you understand that my heart is not to be mean or unloving or anything, here's my heart. If you go to Village Church, if you're part of our local church here, we're given the privilege to teach and train you and to show you some of these things. And so um, I want to take some time and I want to take the small risk of maybe inciting a handful of you for the sake of loving most of you in this room. You ready? Ready. Thank you, Jen. (laughs) By the way... By the way, I love when you speak back to me, as long as it's semi-respectful and loving. John's like the king of it. I mean, if you're like, you're ugly and fat, don't do that. But like, I do appreciate. Thank you. I love you too. All right. Love is love. Now, I want to be clear. So some of you, you're like, you see it for what it is. But for many of you, this has become your mantra. I don't know what you struggled with personally. I, I, I don't know some of the details of your private life. But I, I do know that for you, this has been a really important phrase. It has validated you and, and, and really empowered you. But again, the goal here is less about offending and it's more about scrutinizing ideas. Does it really stand? Uh, on the surface, this feels good because who doesn't love love? But here's, here's my question. And now I'm talking to Christians, not non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to believe anything I'm saying. I'm talking to Christians. What if the word of God forbids a certain kind of love? I mean, sure, love is love, trees are trees. The point of the affirmation is to affirm all different kinds of love. What if the word of God forbids some kind of love? Now, I'm gonna use extreme examples because I think extreme examples sometimes make the point of showing you the invalidity of a principle. Is pedophilia love love? I mean, no. Is a nine-year-old child bride Love because her husband gives her candy and toys and she is willingly a participant in that relationship? Is bestiality love? I mean, I I could go on and on and on. These are extreme statements to make the point. 
Even if you say love is love, everyone who says it, they have a limit. There is a point where they actually say, no, that's actually not okay. But my bigger question is not just to expose the unsustainability of the idea and the mantra. It's to look at a Christian and say, but does it stand the scrutiny of the word of God? Because the word of God actually has strong opinions. And some of you thinking I'm ta- think I'm simply talking about heterosexuality. I'm, I'm actually just, I'm speaking this broadly. The creator of love has jurisdiction over love, does he not? And so this is where we, we kind of just step back and we say, maybe, maybe I need to be careful with some of the mantras because they bypassed my head and they went to my heart They gave me a warm hug and everybody loves that. But what if it's not helpful or pleasing to God or true? Now I'm going to go in a completely different direction. And I'm guessing of all the ones that I say, this is probably the one that is um, believed by the most amount of people, Christians in the room. And and, uh, let me explain it after I say it. Everyone is a child of God. I would love for that to be a true statement. Here's my problem. The Bible literally never says it. Now, does God love everybody? For sure. If you're made in the image of God, he's got a heart that bursts with love for you. But does he love everyone as legal sons and daughters? No, in fact, the Bible talks very clearly that those who are living under the domain of darkness and then those who have been transferred by faith and adoption to the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. There are sons and daughters who were adopted and there's everyone else. And that to become a son or daughter of God doesn't happen because you were born. It happens because you personally trust in Jesus. Let me tell you the danger of the idea. Um, Almost all of my friends who are universalists, meaning they believe that everybody goes to heaven, hell is only created um, for the devil and his angels and no one else goes there, maybe except for Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Mussolini and Stalin and a few other people. Other than them, everybody gets to go to heaven. And the reason they say this is they come back to this mantra. Well, everyone is a child of God. And what they're trying to communicate is that God loves everyone, and he does. But to be a child of God, in the official biblical sense of the word, happens when you personally trust in Jesus, and then you are adopted as his child. Here's the third one. Good people go to heaven. If you've been around village... You have heard me say this a hundred times, but there's a handful of people who are newer and you've never heard this, so we're going to go over this again. Every religion ever created in the history of the world that has any notion of heaven, hell, etc., basically says the exact same thing. Good people go to heaven. If you accrue good works, you go to heaven. The only religion or faith system that does not adhere to this is biblical Christianity. That is it. It's like... This little simple mantra has invaded every false religion that has ever existed. In fact, every religion, every Christian version that that becomes a cult almost always makes salvation by the accrual of good works. And so let me let me let me like give you a new mantra and this is where I think mantras can be used for good. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Now put that and stand that up to the test and the scrutiny and the weight of the word of God. Does that line up? 
And that's where a mantra can be used for great good or great evil. Imagine the pressure you put on someone that your entire eternity is contingent on you having more good works than bad works and being good relative to the people in your life. You better hope they're pretty terrible people so that you're really good. It's a mantra. Here's number four. A God of love would never let your loved one die, restrict who you can love, send someone to hell. Now, of all of these, there is none that I wish were more true than this one. Because when you sit with people who are literally going through terrible, excruciating circumstances, and their heart is asking I think, an appropriate question. God, why did you do this? Everything in me wants to get God off the hook in that moment. The problem is I open up the word of God and he lets people die. I open up the word of God and he has restrictions. And not just who I can love, but it feels like every part of my life he's got an opinion on. And he explicitly talks about hell reserved for those who have not trusted in Jesus. I don't like it. I'd love to be a universalist, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be so much easier? But our job is not to make up truth. It is to take these mantras and these ideologies and these concepts and to submit them under the authority of the word of God. Last one, and probably most controversial of all, my body, my choice. I have sat with more than I'd ever cared to tell you women who have had an abortion, recently had an abortion, and many of you have sat as well. There are many of you here, this is your lifelong secret. And I, before I tell you anything else that I want to say on this subject, the evil one is a shamer. That's, I have no condemnation for you. Um, there is zero part of me that wants to trigger you or poke at an issue. And I, I do believe with all my heart that the blood of Christ is the most powerful force in this universe to forgive, redeem, and transform us. Amen. And so I, I stand here as somebody who wants to test a mantra, not somebody who wants to shame or antagonize you. And this is the challenge with mantras. They're emotional. And so the response to most Christians is, I can't talk about it. We have to be able to be, do better than that. And so um, I hope you hear the heart with which I go at this. If you don't think too hard, this feels open-minded, feels reasonable, supportive of women in objectively terrible and challenging situations. And even empathetic to the baby. Really, who wants to be born into a world where your most foundational relationships literally don't want you to exist or wish you could have waited a couple years till life was in order? But if you think past your mantra and you challenge the thoughts, what becomes... What was reasonable 
very quickly becomes terrible. So there's this line with cultural mantras. And and it's a line of intellect where if you ask a question that shows or exposes the breaking point of this idea, cultural mantras have a built-in defense mechanism. And I mentioned this earlier. It is anger and name-calling or it is running away. And, and this, is how, this is how cultural mantras remain unchallenged. Because intuitively, here's what I know. If I touch it, there's going to be a cost. And it's either going to be your emotions or our relationship or maybe even slander. So we don't. So here's what I'd like to do. I understand that this is sensitive, but I'm really not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. I want to help you develop a healthy way of thinking that is rooted in truth and stands up to the scrutiny of challenging questions and the authority of the word of God. So here's my questions for those willing to let this idea be challenged. So when is it, when is it ever okay to take someone's life because they can't feel it? Can I take the life of an old person in their sleep because they can't feel it? Where does the logic end? When is it ever okay to take a life because that life is not wanted? Can I take the life of a homeless person who has no family and nobody will miss their, their presence in the world? So when is it ever okay to not call someone a full person because they are still developing? So what about a teenager? Are they more human than a five-year-old? Where does the logic end? When is it okay to harm another person because you were harmed or because that person's presence triggers you? Do you guys see what I'm doing? This is not about shame. This is about scrutinizing an idea. Now, I think the last one is probably the most important. When is it okay to dehumanize someone simply because the law does? Isn't that how slavery was justified? So mantras are simplistic one-liners designed for you to pull out anytime something is challenged. And standing behind the mantra is a threat. Implicit, never spoken, but a threat. If you challenge it, you're going to pay. And that's really challenging. And, and, and if we want to be thinking people, we want to be able to stand up and let our ideas be scrutinized and we would let truth reign. Now, I want to go back to Colossians because this gets interesting. Where do these mantras and these empty, deceitful philosophies come from? Look at verse 8. According to human tradition. In other words, God didn't come up with these ideas. Okay, another question. Where did human tradition come from? Because a whole bunch of people and cultures have all these ideas, and, and if they don't stand up to the word of God, where do they come from? And look what he says in verse 8. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In other words, low-level demons assigned with the task 
to dupe the masses through cultural mantras. You may not know this, but as we're talking about the spiritual war, we've obviously talked about angels and demons quite a bit. Angels and demons are given tasks. There's a whole set of angels, and their task, their life work, is to surround the throne room of God and to protect and worship him, as if he needs protection and worship in the first place. You have the angel Gabriel, which it seems that almost every time an angel talks and gets a name, I believe it's Gabriel. So Gabriel seems to be this really special angel whose job is to tell very important people really important messages from the divine. That's a pretty cool job. There are angels. We looked at this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Their task is to protect children, and whenever there's harm to children, they go tell the Father who's in heaven, and he deals with it. That's a cool job as well. And in the Apostle Paul's understanding of the spiritual war, there are demons who are tasked to start false religions, bad ideas, destructive concepts, take cultural mantras and insert them into our cultural language so that we might be duped. Let me, let me summarize this. Culture is filled with demonic ideas that feel good in the moment but are, de are designed to enslave and plunder you in the end. And how terrible the pastor would I be if I did not even talk about some of these concepts. And we're all vulnerable, but we don't need to be. Now I want to show you quickly two other texts. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I want to show you how this plays out. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead and your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world. There's a, a way of the ages. There's a way that things work in the world. And you know this. You can look around and you see that things kind of function in a pretty consistent way. And in case you're wondering, who determines the course of this world in Paul's brain? And for Paul, it was the Roman Empire with all of its issues and sins. And here's what he says. The course of the world which follows the prince of the power of the air. Who is that, by the way? And Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The apostle Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, literally, a stronghold is something that is a fortified structure to keep people in and keep enemies out. Do you think he's talking about a literal fortification here? No, he's talking about something deeper. He's talking about something spiritual. Verse 5, we start to see this. I want you to watch all of the words that I highlight. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every, what? Thought captive to obey Christ. Where, where is all of this happening? Where is this battle happening? It's happening here. And what happens here has a profound impact on everything we do. Let me define spiritual stronghold. It's the cultural fortifications that hold people's minds captive to lies. I don't know if you know this, but there is an entire infrastructure organized and created by the demonic realm to keep you dumb. To keep you unaware of what's happening to keep a spiritual fog over your eyes that you might not think, that you might passively just agree. Yeah, that feels right. That is not how we do things. And let me share with you, these are age-old mechanisms 
that the evil one from the beginning of sin in the world has done. Every time there is a city or a nation, it's so predictable. Six spiritual strongholds are maintained through six different mechanisms. Number one, propaganda from cultural elites, TV, entertainment, social media, news, politicians, all in unison, reverberating the same garbage. And the masses go, that feels like a hug. Social pressure from businesses, family members, community, and friends. Once the masses buy into the propaganda, what happens? Now there is unbelievable pressure to ally, to align your mind and your mantras with theirs, because if you don't, you might lose your job. You might lose your friends. You might not be invited to Thanksgiving dinner. You might be the one they talk about every time you leave the room. And it moves on to indoctrination of children through media, education, and government programs. This, by the way, it's not new. This is how it's always been done. You win the children, you win the next five generations. Number four, the slow dismantling of God's systems, family, church, government. Number five, the exploitation of tragedies. I'm not going to pretend to know how everything with COVID has been happening, but here's what I do know. The evil one is using this and exploiting this to steal and to kill and destroy. And I'm trying to keep my eyes open to saying, hmm, what are you up to globally, nationally, locally, and finally, number six, cultural mantras, repeatable, sacred, feel-good statements that keep minds captive. You watch these six things converge and you capture a city, a state, a nation, a globe. The ubiquity of our phrases and our concepts. And we are all vulnerable to these if we are being more formed by the world than the word. So let me summarize it like this. The primary battlefield of the evil one is that of your mind through spiritual strongholds. Welcome to Village Church, by the way. Really glad to have you. It's your first time here. It's a delight. All right, three so what's. Identify demonic ideas through the grid of John 10.10. 10. Does it steal? Does it kill? And does it destroy? John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you, they, might have life and have it abundantly. Some of these are very obvious, and I want to harken back to last week's message. We had Peter from Uganda up here, and he talked about the realities of uh, human trafficking in Uganda, as well as child sacrifice. So let's talk about extreme Islamic fundamentalism, where you steal children, teach them to kill and hate, and then release them on the world to destroy as suicide bombers, child brides, or something of the sorts. Can we just agree on a surface level? It definitely feels like something Satan would do. Let's go like and make another obvious one. Child sacrifice, where you have to go steal a child, and then you have to slowly or quickly kill them for demonic witchcraft purposes, then you discard their bodies and you leave their family in devastation. Does that like have a, I don't know, a whiff of demonic activity there, right? And then there are less obvious ones. And these are the ones that are more culturally normal. So if you're in Uganda, child sacrifice, you're not gonna be probably quick to put it together that that might be demonic because it's so usual. But let's talk about some of the ones that probably we should be aware of 
but maybe are a little bit harder to see. And we'll go right back to where we were earlier. The abortion industry. Does it kill and does it destroy? It kind of has the whiff of a demonic influence, doesn't it? Um, I've spoken about this on multiple occasions. Um, I have very little tolerance for critical race theory that makes our identity anything but being a child of God frames us into victim and victimizer and justifies one new level of racism to make right old racism. I just have a hard time with all, the whole construct. Does it destroy friendships that are no longer friendships? There are pastor friends of mine that we have been aligned on everything and they won't speak to me anymore because of this simple ideology. It's just crazy to me. Is it trying to deal with a good, like a bad issue in a good way? It's trying, but... Sometimes we come up with really bad ideas to deal with real problems. I've spoken about this one, especially in our series on Israel's government. Anywhere you touch communism and Marxism, what happens? People die in the hundreds of millions. But it's one of those things that on paper, like, yeah, if humans weren't evil, it would be great. And so wherever it pops its ugly head up, I'm like... It, literally just doesn't work and and yet these mantras are just circling around us and and we're like maybe because it feels good until you look at it play itself out it really feels like the de the devil knew how deceitful our hearts were and played an entire political system into that to the destruction of hundreds of millions i could go on and on and on but there are all of these ideas that it, they don't pass the John 10, 10 test? Do they steal? Do they kill? Do they destroy? Now I want to move to number two, and, and this has been my big so what for you guys from the beginning of this message, but we must be immersed in the word of God to grow our discernment. John 17, 17, when I heard this, it was the first time that I had any sense that I wanted to teach the Bible. So for me, this verse is one of those ones that just was very formational for me. And I was a junior in high school when I read it for the first time. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. And to sanctify them means to purify them, to make them more like Christ, to make them holy. And then here's his remedy. This is so amazing. Your word is truth. And so what we need is we need our minds purified by the word of God because we are being inundated by the world on such a regular basis. And so if we want to be formed into the image of Christ, being inundated in the word of God and being committed to personal prayer are not options. They are now our daily lifeblood. They are what sustains us and gets us through and if you don't know how to do it again, we would love to come alongside of you and help you. We're all being formed, but let it be primarily by the word of God so that when the world tries to form us, we have eyes of discernment to see it for what it really is. And so what number three, have unbelievable compassion for those who do not have spiritual discernment. I want to show you two passages from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, think of spiritual fog, a veil, it blinds you from seeing what's right in front of your face. It's veiled to those who are perishing, non-Christians. But in their case, the God of this world, who is that, by the way? Satan. He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's got a motivation, here it is to keep them 
from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. There is a spiritual fog, a veil put over people's eyes that they might not see the reality and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ, who came to give us life and life abundant. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, he's got all this words and vocabulary and phrases for people who have not trusted in Christ yet. The natural person, they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. And by the way, that's not a surprise because if, if I were in a mosque, I don't accept the things of a mosque. If I, if I was in a Buddhist temple, I'm not going to accept them. I might be there, but I'm not going to accept them as true. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to accept anything of what I said. And even if I rooted it perfectly in Scripture and it was the right interpretation and application, I still don't expect you to because until you believe in the Word of God, I don't expect you to agree with it. And here's what he says. The natural person, they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're not Christians. Of course they don't. Because they're follied to him. And there are some of you here, everything I've said, you're thinking to yourself, that guy's an idiot. It doesn't make any sense. It's extreme. And I'd expect that. Because in order for you to have any semblance of an agreement with anything I said, there, there has to be some kind of foundational Christian worldview. But then the Apostle Paul says he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Meaning, in order for you to actually understand, you need discernment which comes from the Holy Spirit. So let me just take a moment and say this. If you're here... And maybe for the first time, there is something about Christianity and Jesus. You're seeing it clearly. I want to encourage you to ask God to save you from your sins and give you the spirit of discernment. Uh, maybe you're not even ready for that. Here's what I want to ask you to do then. I want to ask you to ask God to give you eyes to see the reality of who Jesus is and what is happening in front of your eyes. Ask him to take the veil off, to clear out the spiritual fog, that you might see the beauty of Jesus and the evil of Satan, that you might actually be able to see clearly that forgiveness is truly yours through faith in Christ. And maybe today you will be able to say, I have become an adopted child of God, not because of my accrual of good works, but because of Jesus Christ and my faith in him alone. And so today, if there is any part of you that is ready and desiring to trust in Christ, then I want to invite you to make that decision. And we're going to celebrate communion in a little bit, but you know what we do in communion? We make personal declarations when we partake of communion. You don't say it, but just by partaking of it, you are saying, Jesus Christ is my God. You are saying, I'm a sinner. You are saying, I have asked him to forgive my sins. You're saying, I believe he rose again from the dead. You're saying, I, I believe that salvation is not for good people, but it's for forgiven people. And if those are statements that you are ready to say today for the very first time, I have incredible news. God promises you not just forgiveness of sins, not just an eternity in heaven, not just spiritual discernment and understanding the word of God. He offers you the spirit of Jesus himself who teaches you, trains you, encourages you, helps you, loves you, and forms you into the image of Christ and gives you then eyes to see what before you could never see before. I invite you to trust in Jesus today.
If you're here and you're from a different church and you're thinking, oh, they're going to partake of communion, should I do that with them? And here's my answer. If you have trusted in Christ, it does not matter to me where you go to church. I want to invite you to participate in communion with us because we are one in Jesus Christ. And so over, um, there is a, not a beam, John, what is that called? Column. I was challenged that that is not a beam. I call it beams. And I was like, oh, it is a column. Go figure. That is that column to my right, your left. There are elements under there. And then the column over to my left, your right. But then between the double doors are also elements. We're going to have a time of silence. When the silence is done, we're going to sing together. And during the song, I want to invite you to get up and grab elements. If you haven't gotten them, you can get them now as well. And then what we're going to do is we're going to worship At the end of the song, we are going to partake of the elements together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus Christ. So let's have a time of silence and and let's just savor in the goodness of what God has given us by Jesus' blood and his spirit.